Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today is Indigenous Peoples Day, a holiday that celebrates and honors Indigenous Americans and their histories and cultures. It's celebrated the second Monday in October, and more and more states, cities, and individuals are marking the day as an alternative to celebrating Columbus Day. Indigenous Peoples Day has been officially celebrated in the state of Iowa since 2018, but celebrations have been growing around the state for a long time. This year, there are celebrations in many towns and schools, and there are more of them every year. Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids will hold its first official Indigenous Peoples Day celebration this year, and one of the people behind the celebration is Morgan Bear. She is a TRIO program advisor at Kirkwood and a member of the Meskwaki Nation. Morgan, Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me what you have planned for this celebration. Um, So for Monday, we have two showcases kind of going on. And I have been working with Jared Pushitaniqua. And so I decided to hold two showcases on Monday at two separate class times so that professors can bring their students to the class. I am also giving a talk to staff and faculty on Tuesday and then and that's just going to touch on like the background the history my own journey as a native student in higher education and then um, we are also going to be having poster boards um, kind of like around Kirkwood I worked with our Meskwake Museum in getting those and they were kind enough to loan them to us for that and there will also be a dancing demonstration during these yeah. presentations? Yeah, so we are going to have a f- some dancers come and demonstrate like the different kinds of dances. We are also going to show like a video. Um, Jared had put that together, I think a while back, and it's called Why We Dance on YouTube. And so we're going to show that first just because we, he had kind of touched on, you know, the importance of we need to educate them first before they kind of know what they're looking at sure. and, you know, what goes behind that and the history of it. So this is a wonderful learning opportunity for students and I'm sure staff and faculty members at Kirkwood who may not know very much about Indigenous cultures and and don't have much experience with this. For you, I mean, you talked about being part of this at, at the University of Northern Iowa when you were a student. As a Native student, what does it mean What did it mean to you then, and what do you think it means for Native students at Kirkwood to have a celebration like this? Yeah, so when I was a student at Kirkwood, I, you know, that was the first time that I was leaving home from the settlement, and I had went to the Meskwaki High School from on and off into third grade, and then third grade, I just, you know, kind of fully committed to being there until I graduated high school, and so when I went to Kirkwood, that was the first time that I was away from home and in class with other people. And, you know, I felt I felt kind of lost. And, you know, there was nothing there for me. I didn't have a lot of, I really didn't have anything to get involved in. And I felt like I missed home. I missed my people. And so when I went to UNI, I would say that's kind of where, like, I found my voice. 
Um, I had some experiences with other students um, and some professors, just kind of things that were said or, you know, kind of towards Indigenous people. And that was kind of when I realized at Kirkwood that a lot of people didn't really know that we were still here. They weren't really culturally aware. You know, there was misrepresentations. And so when I went to UNI, that's kind of where, like, I found my voice and I was able to get involved as, you know, a student of color. And from there, um, it was a lot easier to kind of, you know, be welcomed there. And I want to make the presence of Indigenous students here more large. And a lot of the time, students, they want to go to Kirkwood, but, you know, you're it's an hour away from home, which isn't that far, but... You know, a lot of students, it's hard to leave, um, yeah. and it's it's difficult. Well, and I think for, for those of us who are not Indigenous, um, for people who grow up in an Indigenous culture living, for example, on the Meskwaki settlement, where you're really in an Indigenous community, your Native community, that leap to going to college, community college or any kind of college, leaving that com- that community is it's a real culture shock in a powerful way that I think a lot of us have a hard time understanding. Can you help me understand it a little better? Yeah, so I had probably always thought that like oh there's no way I could go through a culture shock. Um when I was in grad school I studied transfer shock and as I was going through that I was like maybe that's what it was, but Yeah, it's, I guess as a student of color, I always thought that, like, there's no way that I could go through, you know, a culture shock here in America into, you know, a predominantly white, you know, college, community college, university. But it was just different with, you know, nobody knew where I was from. It almost felt like, I wish I could tell everyone I'm from the settlement and I haven't had classes with other people who didn't look like me. My roommates didn't look like me. They had no idea. And most people don't even know where, you know, the settlement is until I always say, do you know where the casino is? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. And so, yeah, it was, it's different. Like, you know, not a lot of people know that it's there and it's hard to explain to people the different customs that we have and, you know, how different it is really. You at Kirkwood, you're also planning a larger celebration for Native American Heritage Month, which is coming up in November. Tell me what you're hoping to do. Yeah, so these two showcases are kind of like a preview of the bigger one um, that will be happening in November. And so um, so really just trying to use the, I would say, the privilege that I have of being, you know, in the college and kind of opening that to other spaces as well as having um, community programs come and table as well as like Kirkwood programs come and table during that event. I can imagine the, that that could be a powerful experience for the Meskwaki young people who are coming and experiencing this college environment too. So there are multiple, multiple uh, goals being accomplished at the same time. Um, there will be a lot of students attending the event today and the events um, in Native American Heritage Month that don't have much experience with this. What advice do you have for people who may be witnessing Native American dancing and specifically uh, Meskwaki dancing for the first time? What, how do you bring yourself to that? 
Yeah, so I would say um, this past summer I had taken a few programs from our trio, like around, trio programs are, you know, all around the world, all around the nation and in Iowa. And so we had taken DMAC, Iowa State, Marshalltown, Kirkwood. And so something that, you know, they were really excited. And I think that's kind of like, you know, a lot of people, when you mention Native American or Meskwaki, people jump on that. You know, they want to know what it is. They want to see what, you know, what are they talking about? Um, and I would say, you know, if you're interested and, you know, you want to see what it's about and you see those events going on, go, you know, go be present, you know, and then after you're done, do your research. Um, you know, where is the Meskwaki settlement? What does that mean? You know, it's big. I mean, to us, it's it's something to really be proud of. And not a lot of people know, you know, that we're the only federally recognized tribe in Iowa. And so when they when we say that, you know, and people are like, wow, I never even knew that. Yeah. What does Indigenous Peoples Day mean to you personally? Well, I would say growing up, I, you know, going to an all Native American school, to be honest, I don't think I really ever knew Columbus Day was a thing until I went to college. And I was like, why is there a day for this? You know, because we grow up knowing, you know, who Columbus was, what he did. And I think, you know, since I came back to Kirkwood, I I kind of carry a lot of the experiences that I have with me through college. And um, I've kind of shared this story and Um, I had been in a speech class and I was going to be, it was kind of like an informative speech and talking about, you know, picking a topic and wanting to change it. And so I picked Columbus Day and I had turned in my draft and I had gotten an email from my professor asking me to come in and, you know, before or after class. And so I had went in and he had explained to me that I should pick a different topic because this isn't based on facts and you know this is an opinion essay and I can't possibly blame one man for killing thousands and thousands of Native Americans and you know I should probably just pick a different topic. I didn't really know how to react at the time and I just was kind of like okay um, you know because I didn't really know you know that was kind of probably the first time where like of facts or books were thrown at me. Um, And so I just wasn't really sure what to do. But I knew, you know, growing up, I know what that is. And so I decided I was going to keep it. And I would say that was probably my first, like, I'm not going to do that. And so I gave this speech. And I honestly think that um, the professor was kind of forced to give me a good grade on it because the class loved it. Um, You know, they liked it a lot. And I kind of carried that with me because I kind of realized that it is based on, I mean, I know it's based on facts. It's it's a history that that a lot of people were not taught, the true history of this colonization. Yeah, yeah. But it was a history you, you were taught from the very start. Yeah, and so, you know, as time went on, you know, people started to change the day to Indigenous Peoples Day and, you know, colleges started celebrating it and, you know, going to UNI asking me to, you know, if I wanted to help with it. And so I think it just means, you know, to me that we are definitely far along than where we used to be as well as, you know, 
where I was when I was just starting out in college and not afraid to push back. But, you know, I'm I'm happy that I'm able to come back to this college and change that for, you know, a lot of other students and give them something that's real and, you know, something that they can see for themselves. Morgan Bear, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. Morgan Bear is a TRIO program advisor at Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapids. The school will be hosting its first ever Indigenous Peoples Day celebration today, including an educational display of dancing done by members of the Meskwaki tribe. And there's also a good chance that there is an Indigenous Peoples Day celebration happening near you. So take a look around. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Tomorrow night at 6.30, a new television series debuts on Iowa PBS. It's called Iowa Life, and it's a weekly series designed to shine a spotlight on the cultural gems and inspiring stories that make Iowa what it is. In a moment, we will meet Pat Boberg and Emily Kestel, part of the production team that's bringing this program to life. But first, let's get a taste of the show. Here is an excerpt from the first episode that introduces us to the Riverside, Iowa councilman who made Riverside the future place of Star or future birthplace of Star Trek's Captain Kirk. I read the book, The Making of Star Trek, by Stephen Whitfield and Gene Roddenberry, and Roddenberry, of course, created Star Trek. There was a biography of Captain Kirk, and it says he appears to be about 34 years old and was born in a small town in the state of Iowa. Well, being born in a small town in the state of Iowa, that, of course, was something I latched onto. And so the, the evolution of that came when I was on the city council and the mayor, Robert Schneider, asked us to come to the next meeting and discuss how we would promote our community. And so I had this low-hanging fruit out there So I brought it up at the council meeting. The rest of the council, there was only three other members there. They, uh, one guy said, you know, there's not much going on here now. This might help. So he seconded the motion and motion passed. And then it took off. This final frontier starts in Riverside, Iowa. There it is, a monument honoring the future birth of Captain James T. Kirk. Every television station in Iowa came. Radio stations were calling. I don't want to say it was a slow news time, but it was kind of a fun thing. That was the voice of Steve Miller. And that's from the first episode of Iowa Life, a new series from Iowa PBS that begins airing on Tuesdays at 630 and Sundays at 1030 a.m. this week. Iowa PBS is an underwriter of IPR. And two members of the Iowa Life team are with me now, producer and director Patrick Boberg. Hello, Pat. Good morning, Charity. How are you doing? Wonderful. And also with us, producer and director Emily Kestel. Hello, Emily. Hey, Charity. Thanks for having us. It's wonderful to have both of you here. And uh, Pat, why don't you start? Tell me how this series was conceived. Well, I think Iowa PBS has a long-running history of telling stories that, like this, you know, that are human interests, that are unique, 
people in the state who, uh, for as long as the state's been around, just really make you think, oh, wow, this is in Iowa, or this is a really interesting person or place or concept that originated here. So, uh, you know, there's been iterations of it. In the 70s, there was an assignment Iowa. Then there was Take One in the 80s, which I appear on as a seven-year-old for one moment. And then there was Living in Iowa, Greetings from Iowa, and, and now Talk of Iowa. Wait, talk about the radio show. <laughs> See, there's too many Iowas. There Iowa are. Life. Well, our missions kind of dovetail there a little bit. <laughs> Beautifully. <laughs> so, uh, Emily, why don't you tell us as as you're developing the series? I know that there is a team. There have been four of you working on the series and bringing this together. All of you bringing your own independent ideas to it. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Yeah, so the beauty of this show is that it's a magazine-style show, so there is variety in in each of the features, each, in, each of the individual features within the episode. So I wouldn't say that we're given free reign in deciding what we choose to cover, but um, anything that we think is interesting and we think other people would find interesting, we kind of just get to pitch it and, and run with it. And I think that's what I like the most is that it has the ability to evolve and every every single episode is entirely different from the last. Well, and when you're celebrating the, the state of Iowa, exploring the state of Iowa, I, I think that there is a danger of falling into some stereotypes and, and some tropes that I think we're all familiar with in the state. Um, Pat, is that... Has that been part of your mission to try to get past that? Well, sure. I think when it comes to what people outside the state think of Iowa, I'm fine with telling some of those stories. I think it has to be told, you know, that farmers live in Jefferson, Iowa or Centerville, Iowa or things like that. But I I personally love finding things that uh, people who either found themselves here by chance or have lived a unique life, left Iowa and come back, run things in Iowa that you don't expect. The unexpected always grabs everyone's eye. You know, you don't see something unexpected and just keep walking about your day. You kind of lean in. So that's where I go. I look for characters or I look for organizations that, uh, especially nonprofits, that, you know, kind of say, oh, yes, this is something in Iowa that I can be proud of. So if there is somebody who makes a really great sour cream raisin pie in a certain town, you know, that's something that people say, that's Iowa, you know, Okay, great. You know, I would love to tell, you know, the Iowan story that people know, but let's also look to the left a little bit, to the right a little bit and see things that are just beyond what is what's, you know, could be put on a billboard from somebody who doesn't live here. Emily, do you have anything you want to add to that? I mean, I think Pat said that really well. I think um, the beauty of the show is that every I think every episode, there's always going to be someone that says like, oh, I had no idea that this organization existed or that this kind of person existed. Pat is, we call him like the king of characters um, (laughs) at the station. He always finds these really interesting individuals. um, And I think myself included, like when, when you watch them, you're like, I, I would have never guessed that this would have happened in Iowa and is, and is still happening. Yeah. You know, and when you look at Iowans, I like to like there's people here who like to claim, you know, I'm an I'm a native Iowan. I was born here. And then there are people like myself who are transplants who I was born in Illinois and came here as a kid, 
And through three different iterations of my life, I found myself back in Iowa and I choose to live here. And then there are like I have a story coming up in a couple episodes, a couple stories about immigrants and refugees. And those are people who, you know, never even probably knew that Iowa existed and they find themselves here. And those people are Iowans as well. So it's uh, it's it's really kind of fun to turn over the leaves and see what you know, what people are underneath. Yeah, I think people, especially outside of the state, they they view Iowans as a big monolith. And that could not be further from the truth. We're all different. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different um, stories that we bring to the table. And we're just trying to shed a light on some of those. I think that's probably true for it's definitely true for every state, you know, and when you think of somebody who lives in Arkansas, I mean, I don't even know a cliche about Arkansas to tell you the truth. I'm sorry, (laughs) I picked that one. But it's 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 the same thing everywhere. And I think in Iowa, being a, a state of three million or less, you know, the fewer people, the fewer uniqueness, maybe. But that, I don't think that's the case. We, I'd be surprised if we ran out of interesting people to share. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, hear another clip from the first episode of Iowa Life, and and this is part of the story that that really demonstrates the diversity in the state of Iowa. This is a clip featuring Dana James, who's the founder and publisher of Black Iowa News. It was really to keep us safe. Tonight, the U.S. death toll rises to 30. I was noticing what was happening with the pandemic, and I'm reading stories from all across the country about how black families, you know, are just getting decimated. Here in Iowa, the news really wasn't doing a great job of telling me how many black Iowans were being affected. So I started trying to dig through the numbers and find the numbers. I studied Substack's platform, and I was like, you know what, I can do this. But at the same time, I'm doing it kind of in this part-time way because I'm still working for this um, insurance company. So then George Floyd gets murdered. The mood protest movements and everything started. And the CEO of that company, he sent out an email and it said, all people matter. And I, well, I cried for a long time on my husband's shoulder because I was so angry. And so that is really what took Black Iowa News to to new heights because I knew in my heart I cannot continue to work there. That's another excerpt from the new series, Iowa Life, that debuts on Iowa PBS tomorrow night at 6.30. It will air on Tuesdays and Sundays, Tuesday nights at 6.30, Sunday mornings at 10.30. And uh, this is the first season of the series. A few minutes ago, uh, Emily called Pat the king of characters. So (laughs) I I sense that you guys are are more comfortable bragging about the work of each other than your (laughs) own work. So, Pat, tell me what, what Emily's specialty is. Uh, Emily is a really strong journalist. This is a, a sub story of that, but she's extremely good at grammar as well. But <laughs> when I mean, she's 15 years younger than me. But this story that we just listened to on uh, Iowa Black News, this was, I believe, your first story that you cut. Mm-hmm. It's in the first show, but it's really good, you know, and gets to something that, you know, has pathos, has everything you want in a story. And it tells you somebody that, you know, like I've, I've already harped on is that it's. Maybe you don't say that this is, you know, Farmer John from Cherokee or something. This is people that are also here that have a, a thing to tell. And you've you've done a lot of here's something that's interesting in newspaper. We see it again a couple stories coming up later. That and then there's a there's two or three layers below it that aren't, you know, necessarily character based. Like maybe you could point the, <laughs> the the light at me, but are something that really makes people open up their heart and their mind a little bit. 
And I know that Teresa Knight is also part of your team there. And Cameron McCoy has been working with you as you guys develop this series. Tell me a little bit about how each of you are going out on your own and and producing these stories. But what is the collaboration like, Emily? Oh, my gosh. Well, I've been here since May, so I'm still figuring that out every single day about what it's like. But I guess as a producer, we're kind of the leader of the story, but it very much is a collaboration. We're always all of like Teresa, Cameron, Pat and I, we're always talking with each other, bouncing ideas off of each other. And then we most of us go out with um, videographers as well, and they can weigh in on um on, on what we choose to feature and, and how we choose to tell it. So um, it's it's a very collaborative environment, um, and it's it's been a blast to work with. Yeah, there's a there's a sense of bullpen, old-school journalism about the place where someone comes with, up with an idea or sounding board off of someone else with an idea they have. Uh, a story I have coming up in an episode about a world-traveling juggler I got from one of our videographers. Uh, in episode two, there's a, um, a peacock farmer in western Iowa that came from the director of production, Andrew Bott, who used to be my supervisor. And so it's it's uh, it's a real sense of, hey, here's something. Have you thought about this? Oh, yeah. And then somebody gets excited. I, I, get, I tend to get a little overly excited, <laughs> but that's just the nature of being, I think, a storyteller is, you know, you either want to dig or you will. Yes, I can't wait to share this. Can I, can I ask a clarifying question about a peacock farmer? Yes. <laughs> so <Okay. laughs> the, the production of peacocks, is this pe- breeding peacocks to sell peacocks to people who... Want them as pets? <laughs> Tell well, me just a little bit more about oh, how yes, you farm so, peacocks. Well, episode 102 will be uh, featuring Mr. and Mrs. Peacock, which is Dennis Fett and Deborah Buck. And they live in Western Iowa in Minden. For 40 years, they've been raising peacocks and spreading the joy about peacocks. Uh, people, I uh, think, were alluding to eating them, and you could, but they're, according to Dennis, terrible. They do not <laughs> taste good. Uh, people buy their eggs. They've sold eggs to zoos, to other people who like peacocks. You tend to see peacocks in very strange places and they they just he there's other parts of his story he wasn't a full-time peacock farmer but they've written books and they've written songs so that story is an onion that will you'll i think people really enjoy peeling when it comes to episode 102 but yes uh, that's just a good idea of what type of characters you will see down the line (laughs) all right well i i will be watching next week emily (laughs) do you have another story coming up that you'd like to tell us about oh gosh so many um, one that I am just so excited to share is um, one on an organization here in Des Moines called Girls Rock, which is a nonprofit that really just provides a space for cis girls and non-binary and trans youth um, to come together and just learn music and perform for the public. Um, I was lucky to get to follow them along um, through a two-week summer camp. Um, a videographer and I went uh, five five days throughout the two-week period and just got to see them progress in learning their instrument, writing a cover song, or learning a cover song, and then writing an original song, and then performing it at Woolies, which is a local venue uh, here in Des Moines, and just getting to see their confidence grow throughout that that two-week period was just incredible, and I hope that comes out through the feature as well. It also meant that you, as a, a producer, get to learn how to bring kids out of their shells on oh, camera. Gosh. That's not that's not always easy, is yeah, it? No, it's not. I learned that the hard way. Um, and certainly um, for anyone 
having a big camera in front of your face is a, is very intimidating. Um, and so I've found that when you when you're consistent with it, when when they see you there, um, they get more used to you. But interviewing them is still is still very difficult. <laughs> so give me a, we, we know that the show debuts tomorrow night. Give me a preview of this whole first season, Pat. Uh, I mean, of stories. What, 13, 13 episodes? Yeah, so it's split up into there'll be six weeks, a six week run uh, starting tomorrow. And then there'll be a holiday episode in December. And then another six episodes in early, early, win- late winter. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yep. And it'll, it'll be, like Emily said, a, a real grab bag of Iowa interesting, you know, unexpected elements. And we, we are hitting all types of things. So there's organizations, people's home businesses, people who have led very colorful lives, people who are Iowans that are out there waving the Iowa flag around the, uh, the, the planet. Um, nonprofits are something I've already mentioned that I'm big into. People who are find themselves in unexpected life situations with diseases or traveling. And so it's, it's something that I think people could turn into and really learn something about their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And season two is already in development, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we've been hyper focused on uh, tomorrow, <laughs> right? Just getting the first episode on air. But we are definitely um, I am in the thick of planning features for the second season. It comes up fast. Definitely. Uh, I'll add that we <laughs> so Emily has a story in Clinton and then I shot something in Clinton and met something else in Clinton that was interesting. <laughs> and I said, well, this is just going to have to wait a year because we just can't be the Clinton show as much as <laughs> Clinton deserves some, uh, you know, the spotlight. You know how that goes, Charity. I'm I sure. do. Well, yeah. I also know that uh, when you start a new project, usually there's sort of a backlog of stories that you've been excited to tell for a while. And then yeah. you start looking around the world in a new way. So, Pat, are you looking for suggestions and ideas? Oh, we're always, not just me, anybody at Iowa PBS, I think, loves to hear, you know, you should really look into this person who happens to have the world record for most hats at one time on their head or something. <laughs> you know, we're, we. I don't think there's a person that we work with who wouldn't want to hear a good idea. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the beauty of Iowa PBS and IPR for that um, is that we we want to be like your like this is your station this is a public station we want you to be represented we want you to feel seen in these stories so really what's in our best interest is in your best interest as well yeah you know i always tell people that iowa pbs is like the you know the champion of iowa culture in places that don't get the spotlight so you know des moines like the the local news is going to hit the cities but those small towns you know adams county i have a story in adams county which is i think just under four thousand people they probably don't get statewide coverage as often. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to get over there and tell that story for everyone to see what Corning Iowa is like. Well, congratulations to both of you and to the entire team. We're all looking forward to the show. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, Charity. Thanks, Charity. I've been talking with Emily Kestel and Patrick Bobert. They are both producers and directors on the new series, Iowa Life. It debuts on Iowa PBS tomorrow evening at 6.30 p.m. It's a weekly program airing on Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m., Sundays at 10.30 a.m. starting this week. Now, Iowa PBS is an underwriter of IPR. Coming up in just a moment, we will learn about the Conservation Corps of Minnesota and Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. If you spend much time in Iowa state parks, you will definitely see the work of the Civilian Conservation Corps, a federal work relief program designed to give employment to young men during the Great Depression. The program not only kept people afloat during those difficult years, it also dramatically improved America's public lands. Now, the CCC was disbanded in 1942, but the Conservation Corps of Minnesota and Iowa, an AmeriCorps program, is in many ways carrying on its mission. Amy Yoakum is Iowa Assistant Program Manager for the Conservation Corps, and she's here to tell us about the work this organization is doing and the opportunities it holds for Iowans who want to volunteer or maybe need some important work done on their land. Hello, Amy. Good morning, Charity. Thanks so much for having me today. Well, thank you so much for being here. So let's talk about this modern iteration of the Conservation Corps, and specifically this branch, the Conservation Corps, Minnesota and Iowa. Tell me a little bit uh, about how it came to be. Well, um, it started out as the Minnesota Conservation Corps. They were part of the Iowa DNR, or I'm sorry, the Minnesota DNR. And then um, eventually through budget cuts, um, they started a nonprofit, which became Conservation Corps Minnesota. And in 2009, um, some to get additional funding, uh, they branched out to start an Iowa program. So it became Conservation Corps Minnesota and Iowa. All right. And let's obviously we're just going to focus primarily on what's going on in Iowa. But tell me a little bit about I mean, how many crews are there? How many volunteers do you have in the state? So this year in 2023, we have six crews um, that are located in a few different spots in Iowa. We have some in the Des Moines area. Our office is at actually Jester Park up by Sailorville Lake. And then we have a crew that works for Lynn County Conservation. And then a crew that's based out of Waterloo. um, And they're a traveling crew, so they travel around quite a bit. We've had 320 members organization-wide in 2023, and 39 of those have come through the Iowa program. Wow. And these crews that are located around the state, uh, do they have different focuses? Well, everyone does the same basic natural resource projects. But, um, you know, some people want to travel and go to lots of different states and work with lots of different agencies. And some people, you know, they may have commitments with, you know, a spouse or a dog or something, and they can't travel. So um, that's the big difference. So um, like a crew that works for Polk County Conservation or Lynn County Conservation, they only work for that one particular agency, um, 7 to 530, Monday through Thursday, and then they go home and sleep in their own bed every night. Our traveling crews, you know, like the ones worked out of Jester Park, they may go as east as Ohio, up to the Canadian border. We've gone as far west as Wyoming in the past, and they work a lot down in Arkansas and Missouri. So they could be gone eight days in a row. So just kind of depends on your lifestyle and, and what, you know, your needs are. Tell me a little bit about how volunteering for the program works, because you, you have different opportunities for people, as you've already said, based on, on their needs in their life. But if you, if you apply to be part of this program, how does that work? So um, during in the application and interview process, 
you know, we have conversations about what your particular needs might be, traveling or not traveling, what part of the state you could be based out of. Um, and then we just kind of go from there and place you on an appropriate crew. Um, the crews start in um, early February gen- generally, and they go through about a month and a half of training. So we send them to the Minnesota Wildfire Academy. They get their Iowa Pesticide Applicators License. They do chainsaw training and certification. You know, there's about a month and a half of training that they do. And then their crew, in about mid-March, um, they start getting hired by natural resource agencies to help them with a project. And then they, that's when they start going out and traveling around. And who is attracted to this program? I mean, it's it's mostly young people, but give me an idea. Some of our members are pursuing a career in natural resources. So maybe they're, you know, have just graduated with some sort of a degree from somewhere and they're attracted to the program because they want all those certifications that we offer and all of the experience working on, you know, lots of different types of natural resource projects. Some people just they might be at a place where they're questioning, you know, what they're doing. They're not particularly happy, um, you know, working as a barista or in a bank or whatever it is that they're doing. Um, they're taking a pause to try to figure out what they want to do. But they know that doing service to the environment is important to them. And that's what all of our members have in common, wanting to do service to the environment. So it, it makes them a pretty cool group of people to hang out with. And there are there's a, a youth core opportunity for people as young as 15 years old. But but most of the opportunities we've been talking about, you have to be 18 to volunteer. Yeah, yeah in Iowa, um, in Iowa, our program is was generally 18 to 25, but they did raise it to um, 35. But most of our members, I would say, are 18 to 25. And you mentioned that there has been, uh, there are crews that travel a lot and and will meet needs around the country. Um, There are are some of your members who've also been involved in disaster relief recently? Yes, we had a group of eight we sent um, end of June to Guam for a month for this uh, super typhoon that had hit the island. So um, the Iowa par- part of the program is very, very active in disaster response. Um, we're going to be sending more people in November. Um, we're not sure if they're going to be headed towards Maui or if they're going to be headed towards um, Florida quite yet. Um, we do have a, two crews from Minnesota right now who are in Maui helping with the fire response. When volunteers go through the application process and and are selected, how long is the time commitment? So you can do a a full year, which is February to December. Um, Some people choose to do a half term, which would be May to December. And then we do have a few um, opportunities that are more like just a summer job, May to August. You're really going to get the most bang, I would say, for your buck if you can commit to that longer time because you can get all of those certifications. It's impossible for us, you know, for someone who only wants a summer job to get them all those different certifications. It just won't happen. Right. And give me a rundown again of the certifications that people can earn. 
Uh, um, they're sent to the Minnesota Wildland Fire Academy so that they are um, eventually certified to respond to federal fires. Their Iowa pesticide applicators license, chainsaw certification, defensive driving, um, CPR first aid. Our crew leaders go through wilderness first aid training. Um, there are a lot of other just kind of required AmeriCorps trainings as well. So this is an opportunity for um, volunteers to really gain some skills, gain some certifications. It is a volunteer um, post. There is a stipend that the volunteers receive? Yes. So our members really, uh, receive a monthly stipend. Um, you know, that changes year to year for 2024. Um, it's going to be anywhere from 2200 to $2,600 a month, depending on what position that you're in. And that would be crew leader versus crew member versus field specialist. Uh, we offer free health insurance. Um, we provide, you know, uniforms. All those certifications and trainings are covered by our organization, and they are, they're pretty costly to try to get on your own. Um, healthcare or health, I'm sorry, child care assistance as well. But n- not housing? No. Well, yes and no. Uh, We have a partnership with the National Park Service, the um, Invasive Plant Management Team, and they will be providing housing for two crews for 2024. One of those crews based out of Jester Park at our office, and the other crew is going to actually be in Round Spring, Missouri. When uh, someone becomes part of the program, how long can they stay? You can do up to four AmeriCorps terms in your lifetime, I believe, and you can receive um, two full education awards. I guess I forgot about the education award as part of the benefits package, but um, at the end of your term, if you successfully complete the term, um, and there's a few stipulations with that, then you receive an education award. So it's going to be somewhere between five and $6,000 for 2024. And that's money. You know, no one hands you a check for that amount of money. It goes into a My AmeriCorps account. And then you can dictate where you want those funds to go. So if you had any current student loan debt or if you were going to go back to the school in the future, you have seven years to use that money. For the people of Iowa, I mean, give me an idea of some of the the projects that Conservation Corps members have worked on that some of us might encounter because they, they do do work on public land, right? Yes, we work um, with county conservation boards, the Iowa DNR, um, cities in their parks and rec department. Um, so we have right now, we have a water trails crew that's been going out and clearing log jams in water bodies, river systems to make paddling safer. Um, right now, they're helping the Iowa DNR uh, to map the accesses on all of the trails, uh, water trails in Iowa. Uh, we have had in 21 and 22, we had a monarch monitoring crew. Um, they traveled the state collecting uh, monarch butterfly habitat data. So that was more of a science-based field research crew. They were doing uh, milkweed stem counts, flowering plant surveys, egg and caterpillar, and adult counts as well. And all that information went into a nata- national database uh, for monarch butterflies. But our crews do trail work, a lot of trail work, you know, fixing those old CCC steps at ledges, building new trails, 
a lot of invasive species management. Um, I am a former field worker myself, um, and so I hired CCI crews for 10 years in a row to help me with the savanna restoration project that I had been doing. So they hand harvest prairie seed, uh, a lot of chainsaw work, clearing trees, uh, but a lot of that uh, is probably invasive species management. <laughs> yes, there's plenty, plenty of that work to go around. Um, I mentioned working on public lands and working with uh, the different county conservation offices, et cetera. But there is an opportunity for private landowners to also benefit from the work of this organization. Tell me how that works. So because we're fed- federally funded, um, a private landowner needs to be have their land enrolled in some sort of a um, federally funded program, like CRP, or maybe they're getting equip dollars um, on their land. And, and then there are, there are also some forest health dollars out there, I believe. So, you know, if you had a forest of honeysuckle and you were getting federal funds to help manage that, um, our crew could be hired to come in and help you with that. So we work kind of like a contractor. Um, we go and do the work with, for our partners, but then we're also fee-for-service. So then we charge that organization for the member's time. I can imagine that there are a lot of people who could use your services who don't even know that you're out there. Is that a challenge to to get the word out? You know, we have more work (laughs) than we can, you know, really do. It all depends on our recruitment. You know, with Iowa's unemployment rate so low, um, it's been a challenge recruiting our AmeriCorps members. Um, So... Well, and tell me, tell me about that. How do you reach out? Because AmeriCorps, part of the challenge is that no one stays for very long. You have 100% turnover, yes. and, and that's how the program was designed. But I can imagine that that is really challenging. Yeah. Um, sometimes we have people. So when you're a crew member, you know, you get one skill set. And then if you come back the next year as a crew leader, you get a different skill set in the people management and administrative side. So sometimes people come back, you know, for two years, member and then a leader. Um, you know, we've got a whole whole team of people, you know, recruiting hard. You know, I'll be at Iowa State tomorrow at the College of Ag Career Fair. We do tabling events, outreach like we're doing with you today, um, just to get the word out there that it's a uh, a pretty cool experience. Uh, people people come away from our program really surprised at what they found out they could personally do. You know, like someone who never would imagine that they could run a chainsaw and fell huge trees. Um, and that's very empowering for them. I mentioned at, at the beginning of our conversation that this is part of the continuum, an interrupted continuum, but carrying on the legacy of the Civilian Conservation Corps, which, of course, shaped our nation in so many powerful ways from uh, the work done by so many young men during the Great Depression. How do you think about that? How do you think about what what mission the Conservation Corps of Minnesota and Iowa is fulfilling? Well, I think that um, AmeriCorps in general is there to kind of fill in the gaps where people need help. And so we're, we're filling in those gaps um, in the natural resource world. 
And our, our personal mission is to give equal access um, to the environment for everyone. And so um, we try to be diverse in, in our hiring. Um, and I think we're a pretty just open workplace for people to be in. So doing national service is not for everyone, um, but it is so rewarding for those who actually can step in and do it. Amy Yoakum, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Charity. I've really enjoyed myself. Amy Yoakum is Iowa Assistant Program Manager for the Conservation Corps of Minnesota and Iowa. You can find out more about how to get involved, either as a volunteer or maybe to hire that crew to do some important work on your own land. You can find out all about it at conservationcorps.org. Talk of Iowa is a production of Iowa Public Radio. Our producers are Dan, Danny Gear, Samantha McIntosh, Caitlin Troutman. We get production assistance from Kate Perez and Maddie Willis. We got technical support today from John Pemble. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. You can listen to our podcast and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Talk of Iowa and we love to hear from you. Please feel free to get in touch. You can email talkofiowa at iowapublicradio.org. Coming up on tomorrow's show, a conversation about a new documentary from Ken Burns, The American Buffalo. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe.